As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. The face of Christ or a fake. The latest scientific discoveries. A talk by Paul Ellard. Good evening. How are we? It's lovely to be back in Tasmania again. I feel very comfortable here now. Come often now. It's good. Um, a little story. Oh, who's that, by the way? Pope Francis. We all know Pope Francis, even though he's got his back to us. Which reminds me of a story. There was these two very wealthy businessmen. Um, one was American. His name was Baba, typical American name. And the Aussie guy was called Jack. Now, quite wealthy. Anyway, one day Baba rings up Jack and he says, I'm coming to Sydney. We'll catch up. So he says, okay. So he catches up. And Baba and Jack are having this drink in the pub. And um, Baba says, you know, Jack, I- I'm so popular now. I-, I think everyone knows me. And Jack just thinks, oh, man, this... He's a lovely guy, but he's just got to learn a dose of humility, you know. So he says, Baba, not everyone knows you. He says, yes, yes, yes. He says, I've got to just teach him this. So he says, Jack, Baba, I'll bet you $5,000 that you don't know the Prime Minister of Australia. He says, you're on. They get in the car, they drive down to Canberra. Pull up, walking up the steps of Parliament House. Who should be having a press conference right at the front door? Malcolm Turnbull. He looks over and he goes, Hey, Bubba, what brings you to town? Jack goes, Oh, no. He says, Yeah, yeah. So he hands over his $5,000. This is ridiculous. I've got to teach this guy some humility. So I told you, I told you, Jack, everyone knows me. He said, I'll bet you $10,000 that the President of the United States does not know you. He says, you're wrong. They get in their Learjet and they fly. Yet they get to Washington, pull up outside the White House, just as they're walking along the footpath, the gates open, presidential limousine comes out, all security guards down. All of a sudden, the window comes down. Donald Trump sticks his head out the window and goes, hey, Baba, how are you? I haven't seen you for ages. This is ridiculous. Hands over ten thousand dollars. I've just—I've got to teach this guy a lesson. There's got to be a limit to this. He says, "Baba, I'll bet you twenty thousand dollars that you don't know the Pope." He said, "You're on." They get in their Learjet. They fly to Rome. It's Wednesday. You know what happens Wednesdays in Rome? The Pope's out on the balcony. You know, so they're out there. The Pope's out there on the balcony. So the Pope goes. Is that you, Baba? And he says, Come on up, come on up. So he says, See you, Jack. I'm going up. So he up he goes. He's up on the little next to the balcony on the Pope. They're both waving at the window, all the people. And here I poor old Jack, he's down there. And Baba's up there. He says, Oh, Holy Father, he says, That's my friend Jack from Australia. But oh dear, he's just collapsed. But I've got to go, Holy Father. So he goes down and he comes down, and here's poor old Jack laid out on the thing. 
all the paramedics around him. And he asked the paramedic, what's going on? He said, he's had a heart attack. Oh, no. Put him in the back of the ambulance. He gets in the back of the ambulance. And they're driving to the hospital. He says, oh, Jack, I'm so sorry. He says, I, I guess it was the shock of seeing me up there with the Pope. He says, no, 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 that wasn't what gave me the heart attack. He says, well, what was it? He says, when the guy next to me tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, mate, who's that up there with Baba? <laughs> I told that joke for Sister Mary Emanuel. She's not here. <laughs> the, I'll tell you the story behind it. Eleven years ago, I told that joke, and Sister Mary Emanuel, she was a teenager sitting in the audience, she just laughed all the way from beginning to end. And before I even got to the punchline, and then afterwards she said, oh, my dad tells that joke all the time. We can't bear to hear it. <laughs> that's her dad joke. All right. So that slide was actually just simply to prompt the story. There's a true slide. We'll get serious now. So we want to look at the shroud, the shroud of Turin. Is it the face of Christ or is it a fake? And there's some very strong opinions on either side. The shroud is undeniably the most unique cloth in the world. It's been described as the greatest mystery in the known world. The Discovery Channel lists the shroud as one of the top ten mysteries right up there with the pyramids. Time magazine called it the riddle of the ages. And National Geographic called it one of the most perplexing enigmas of modern times. In the last hundred years, the shroud has been the most studied artefact in human history. Of all the scientific evidence, and there's lots of it, heaps of it actually, none can explain how the image got there. They all agree it's the body of a man who was tortured and nailed to a cross. The question under discussion is, how did the image get there and is it Jesus? Now, obviously, our Christian faith is not dependent upon the authenticity of the shroud. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus, then you witness the proof every day about the reality of Jesus. But Jesus performed miracles in the Bible, and it got people's attentions. So if the shroud is real, then perhaps those who cannot see relevance of Jesus maybe feel to have a second look at Christianity. And that can't be bad. I'll stress right up front, I am not a scientist. All right? But while I personally believe the shroud is authentic, uh, you, of course, are free to disagree. You can make up your own mind. Tonight I want to present you with the facts and you can reflect and come to your own decision. In recent years, there's been a lot of new research. I started doing this talk in about 2007, and just updating it for this, I was just amazed how much new research there is. A lot of it already confirms what we originally thought about the shroud, and some people dismissed, but it's coming back now as quite concrete. But there's also exciting things, and we'll talk about Dr. Ray Rogers in the last few months of his life. Um, some wonderful information came out regarding the carbon dating process, which was a 
very interesting and controversial topic, but we'll have a look at that later. First of all, what is the shroud? Well, the shroud is actually a linen burial cloth that was used in the Jewish traditions. It's The shroud contains the image of a bearded, crucified man about 1.8 metres tall. And it's been various parts of Europe, but since 1578, it's been in Turin in Italy. All the Gospels mention the linen cloth that Jesus was wrapped in after his death. So let's, let's have a look at it. The, um, the linen cloth is one piece, and it's wrapped around from the back to the front. And when you look at the shroud, that's what you see. It's 4.27 metres long, so it's quite a long cloth, but remember, it, it wraps around. So you've got kind of like this centre line down. And then if you look closely in the middle, forget about the edge bits at the moment, come back to them. In the middle, like the front image points to the face of the man, and then on the other side is the back. So we've got this sort of image on the front and the image on the back. And that's, that's basically what you see when you look at the material of the shroud. But when you look, the first thing your eyes go to, if you're like me, I went to all the bits on the outside, trying to work out, what does that mean, right? Well, the, the history of the shroud is sort of coated in fires. There have been three known fires. If it is the shroud of Christ, then you can be sure there's an enemy who's out there to destroy it. He's had three attempts with fires and come very close. But um, burn marks of, of the fire of 1532, and then the sisters sewed in patches to try to repair the cloth a few years later, and there's scorch marks from an earlier fire damage, and there's water stains um, from uh, when the shroud was wrapped up and stored end-on in a, some kind of urn-type container. So that's the, when you, you the front and the back. So if you look carefully, you can see the, the arms crossed over at the front and at the back. Now, something happened in 1898. There was a young lawyer called Seconda Pia, and he was a devotee of this new art called photography. And he got permission to take the first photo of the shroud. So he took the photo and he went into the dark room to uh, process the film. And what he saw, he said he almost dropped the plate when he saw it. He saw this image. So what, to the naked eye, it looks like on the left. You take a photograph and look at the, at the negative, you see that. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the image becomes positive in a photographic neg neg negative, indicating that the image on the cloth is a negative image. Does that make sense? So you're getting the reverse. Now, at this point, we probably need to just pause a button, because there are a lot of people here who are young and only know digital photography, right? Hands up all those who remember taking their film from their holidays down to the local shop 
And you, what did you get back? You got this envelope, you got your photos, and a little pocket at the front, you got your negatives, right? And you used to look at the negatives. And this is, you kept the negatives because if you wanted some more photos, uh, you, you would go back and you'd say to the guy in the Photoshop, here's my negatives, please give me some more photos. And he would, right? So just to show you, um, so this is what happens. The photo is on the right, but the negative is on the left. See how it's got that kind of strange look about it? Right? And um, probably all of the young people who only know digital photography look at that and go, how weird. <laughs> but that's what we used to do, right? So that's what happens with the shroud. It became a positive image. So this was um, amazing. This is the first time this happened. And when he told people about this, a lot of people didn't believe him. They called him a liar. It wasn't until 40 years later, can you believe it? 40 years later, they took another photo and the same results. And they started, this started to get people's attention. So this began then what is the beginning of scientific research into the shroud. So that is the face. Now look how the face comes alive. That mark that you see across the, 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 the thing, that's just a fold mark, right? So quite, quite extraordinary to think that uh, that image has been hidden in there for nearly 2,000 years until the advent of photography did it open up. All right, so can we go to the next slide? We know that it's, um, the shroud is old because this is a, uh, a drawing that dates back to 1192 and it's called the Hungarian Prayer Codex. And you can see that the shroud is there. It, it's distinct because you've got the hands crossed. You see the cloth underneath. And one of the interesting things we'll talk about is when Jesus was nailed to the cross, because of the way the nails went through, the thumb automatically swings in. So you cannot see the thumb on the shroud. So it's um, interesting that whoever painted that in 1192 must have seen the shroud because how would they know that kind of information? Anyway, we'll roll on. Next slide, please. Um, this was in 1582. They had a big public exhibition and so they would bring the shroud out and show everyone that people would love it. But remember, they were just still looking at that sort of washed out image. They didn't see the image that we see. Interesting that this person right in the middle is... Cardinal Charles Borromeo, who later became Saint Charles Borromeo. So this, whenever it was on display, they would hold it by the edge. There's even talks on windy days, they would hang it vertically and put weights on the bottom. So, you know, today we kind of cringe at all that, but, you know, they didn't have the scientific understanding that they were contaminating this cloth and doing it. And it's a wonder it's still in one piece, but anyway... So in 1931, by then they'd at least put it on a board and framed it, and uh, they would bring it out, and they still bring it out now for public exhibitions every, about every 25 years, or if the Pope requests it, or there's some major event. Next slide, please. So more recent times it was kept like that. That's still, it's not like that today, so that's a little bit older. That's kind of in the 70s they had it like that. Next slide. Uh, and so the shroud has been in that building, which is the Cathedral of Turin. If you know Pier Giorgio Frassati, 
he's in there as well. He's in corrupt bodies in there. It's only about 10 paces away. They're separated from each other. Okay, next slide. Um, now the shroud, the shroud is stored behind a glass case that's filled with argon to preserve it because they're worried about it um, aging and falling apart and losing things. So, um, and that's John Paul there. You can see that was a visit of 1998. Next slide, please. Today it's behind this glass and they keep it covered because they don't want the sun on it. The sun can damage it. So, um, as I said, only brought out for special occasions. Next slide, please. Now, up until 1997, the shroud was stored in that box, in that glass case. That glass is very thick. It was done deliberately to stop anyone from pinching it and put it in that box. Um, next slide, please. But in 1997, a fire broke out. Huge fire broke out. Temperature reads 900 degrees. And they were, they were worried that the ceiling would just collapse in. Even the stone and the uh, limestone was starting to melt. Well, not melt, but it was being scorched. It was that hot. Next slide, please. So they were really worried about how to get the shroud out of there. And there's a famous article in the Italian newspaper. Next slide, please. This fireman here, good old Mario, got his pick out and just smashed it and was able to get through it. It's 40 millimetre thick. That's bulletproof glass. He said that God gave him the strength to smash through the glass. So what was put there to protect it almost became like a tomb for it. Had the ceiling collapsed on top, it would have just destroyed everything. Next slide. And so they inspected it afterwards and um, it was okay, unlike the previous ones that um, the fire of 1532 it was in a silver box. And once again, the temperature got so high that the silver actually melted and burnt a hole on the cloth. And because the cloth was folded, one drop went down and went through all the layers. So that's why when you open it up, you get kind of these repetitive marks uh, along the outside. Next slide, please. So let's have a look at a close-up of the face. And this is what um, the scientists have concluded, that um, the person in, the, the man in the shroud suffered a swollen or broken nose cartilage, swollen left cheek, swelling of both eyebrows, torn right eyelid, large swelling below the right eye, bruise on the right cheek, swelling in the left cheek and the left side of chin, and the asymmetry of the beard suggests a section has been pulled out. Uh, that's torture. That's real torture. All right, next slide, please. On the front, we see scourge marks. The scourge marks are actually all over the body, um, but you can see them clearly on the chest. A large uh, flow of blood and fluid from the side, uh, which they said is a wound from a sword. Um, blood from the wrist flows down the arm. So they can actually work out the angle of the arms of Jesus because the blood goes vertically down. And also the body, rigorous mortis, set in the body of Jesus. So um, it's amazing the, the discoveries they can make and nails in the wrist and nails in the feet. Next slide, please. 
On the back, we see um, blood from the puncture mark to the head. So, you know, we think about the crown of thorns as being sort of going like a crown. is more like a cap of thorns right across the whole skull. Uh, shoulder abrasions. Scourge marks again all over the body. Blood from the side running to the back. And nail wounds to the feet. Okay, so it's, um, it's pretty uh, intense. In the 70s, there were these two um, guys who worked for the, um, two scientists who worked for the US Air Force Academy. And they created the first 3D image of the shroud by what's known as a VP8 image analyzer. Now, I can't tell you what a VP8 image analyzer is, but they all the scientists talk about it like as though it's just a, uh, an x-ray machine or something. something. It's not an x-ray machine, but that kind of simplicity. And what they did was they had a photo of the shroud and they put it under this VP8 image analyzer. And what they saw absolutely shocked them because it's not possible to do this with any normal photograph. Next slide, please. So there's the two guys there. You look at the face, it's, it, you can see dimension in it. And if you did that to a photograph, it would all be distorted. The edges wouldn't be clear. Um, it, would be, uh, it wouldn't look like that. So this was um, quite amazing. And this seems to indicate that the shroud is, has got dis distance information encoded in the cloth. The 3D property suggests the only way this could happen is by some interaction between the cloth and the body. And the image itself was radiated onto the cloth. So you can't get this with a painting. So this is what made them scratch their head. Well, how can this be happening? So this was astounded. and They were astounded just like the first photographer did when he saw the, the negative. The VPA analysis was a breakthrough because it allowed scientists to establish that the image on the shroud was formed while the cloth was draped over a three-dimensional object. Now remember, this is very important to keep remembering this. There are no artistic substances on the shroud. There are no paints. There are no pigments. There are no dyes. There are no stains. Okay? There's no, that's really not disputed. 99% of all scientists agree. That's, the only people who say that are people who haven't done their homework. Anyone who's done research into the shroud will tell you. Something has affected the fibres to give a pixelation effect. In TV pictures, we say that darker areas have more pixels. Well, on the shroud, the darker areas have more microfibres that have been affected. Yet the colours of the microfibres are all the same intensity. They're not darker and lighter. See, it's just, it's quite amazing. So the shades of dark and light are not because there are any more or less of any one substance. This is very intriguing. This cannot be produced from any other image in the world. So this caused these two scientists 
to talk to their mates and they said, they talked about it and they said, let's see if we can get permission to study the shroud scientifically. And the timing was right because there was a public exhibition in 1978. So 40 American scientists formed this thing called the Shroud of Turin Research Project, or STIRP for short. Can we go to the next slide, please? And um, you can tell that's the 70s, can't you? Look at those glasses, huh? Um, so, um, yeah, so in 1978 there was an exhibition. Three and a half million people came to this exhibition to see it. And so at the end of it, the research team were given five days to do their research. Next slide, please. So that's what they did. Continuously, they did it in shifts. They did not want to waste one moment, so they had it in shifts. They were only given five days. Next slide, please. And they brought with them 72 crates and 10 tons of scientific equipment. They weren't mucking around, these guys. And um, um, of all the um, scientists except two, all the scientists except two, in other words, 38 of the 40 scientists said they believed the shroud to be a fake. They weren't going in there as you know, devout Christians wanting to spread the Christian message. They were cold, hard scientists. Some were Jewish, some were atheists, some were Christian. They were from all different walks of life. There was no, there was no kind of religious element driving all this. It was done on a scientific basis. Um, the leader of the group, he's a nuclear physicist, he said, we all thought we'd find it a forgery and be packing our bags in half an hour. Dr. John Keller, who's a blood chemist, said, I was convinced it was a forgery, but now there is no question in my mind that there was a crucified, scourged man in the shroud. They would then spend the next three years analysing this information that they gathered, and here's kind of their conclusions. There are no chemical or physical methods known which can account for the totality of the image nor can any combination of physical, chemical, biological or medical circumstances explain the image adequately. We can conclude for now that the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, crucified man. It is not the product of an artist. The blood stains are composed of haemoglobin and give a positive test for serum albumin. We'll come back talk a bit more about the blood. Next slide, please. So many people have tried to create the image uh, of the shroud artificially. Some have come up with some kind of things, but none of them have the properties that the shroud has. So you, you get an idea there of, of how the, the shroud was. Very interesting. The image only appears on the cloth, where the cloth was 3.5 millimetres or less from the body. So there is no image on the side, because the cloth is further away. The image on the shroud is superficial. It is so superficial. 0.13 of one millimetre. Take a human hair, cut it into 50 pieces. One of them is the thickness of the image on the shroud. That's why they're very, they're very careful about it. They don't want to lose it. It's so fragile in a sense, but it's lasted 2,000 years. 
If you took a, a razor and just ran it across the thing, you would take the image off where you took it off from. So quite amazing. Yeah, each individual thread of cloth contains 200 microfibers. And the image is just 1% of a single thread. Incredible. There is no way known today to reproduce this image on the cloth. The image does not penetrate the cloth like other stains. If you use paint or blood or anything like that, the image normally goes into the cloth. The image does not do that. It's just on the surface. What's intriguing is that where there's blood, if they take the blood away, there is no image underneath. So the blood went onto the cloth first, and then the image went on. Now, if you're trying to say it's a fake, boy, that's a big, big challenge to get around. You're trying to tell me that somehow they put the blood on first and then put the body around it. Kind of. But the key point, that's a really interesting point. All right, next slide, please. You know, throughout ages, it's one of the interesting things is that when you see artists' paintings of Jesus, it's amazing how much they look alike. And, um, you know, it, it points to the fact that perhaps the shroud has been around since, well, at least the 6th century on, on, on some of the paintings that they've got. They match perfectly the key points uh, of Jesus' face. Next slide, please. Okay, let's talk about the carbon dating. The carbon dating is absolutely important because if, um, as one times has said, if the cloth is dated to the Middle Ages, forget it, can't be the cloth of Jesus. Right? So in 1980, 1988, they decided, the Vatican gave permission, to take a sample of the cloth and to give it to four independent universities throughout the world to do carbon dating. The priest was given the scissors and he had the job to go in. He was supposed to take four samples from four different places. But you can imagine, you've got to be sorry for the guy, right? Which part do I cut? <laughs> Just like, if this really is the shroud of Christ, this is... Holy stuff, you know, like you just don't go hoeing into it. So what did he do? He took a little bit from the corner, one piece, and then cut it into four. Gave it to all of them, off they went. I don't know if you remember the results, but I remember this being on television. And they came back very smug and on the chalkboard behind them. This is what they dated the shroud at. The oldest they could date was 1260. The youngest, 1390. And so the shroud is only six to 700 years old. Proof, they said. And that um, ended the debate for a lot of people. And um, so, where do we go? Next slide, please. Well, one of the problems is, you saw everybody handling the cloth the way they had, had it on the edge. The worst possible place you could take any sample from, they took it from. See the top left-hand part of the corner, the arrow goes up. That's where they took the sample from. 
So, you know, bad sample, and you get bad data. Next slide, please. Guy on the top left is Dr. Ray Rogers. He's a director of chemical research, and he was part of the original 1978 Shroud team. He said, I don't believe anything supernatural. I believe in science. And he says, as far as I'm concerned, I believe the carbon dating is correct. And so that's the end of the story. But funny how the Lord works and things have happened. This couple here on the right, these guys, they're not, they're not scientists. I think one of them's a librarian. Anyway, they were interested in the shroud and they started studying it. And um, they started to um, come up with some interesting studies and breakthroughs. And in the end, in 2001, they issued a paper uh, on about the patch that was used for the carbon dating. And they claimed that the material used for the carbon dating was from an area of the shroud that had been mended using a process of invisible reweaving. In other words, another cloth other than the shroud had been invisibly woven into the cloth. So expert was this weave that only a textile expert would have picked it up. Well, Ray Rogers, he just said, rubbish. Well, actually, he, he wasn't as polite. He, he called these two part of the lunatic fringe. This is what he called them. And he thought he could disprove their theory in five minutes because he still had some fibre samples taken from the cloth. So he said, I can disprove this very quickly. Well, he got out the thing and this is what Ray Rogers said. I accepted the carbon, I accepted radiocarbon results and I believe the invisible reweave claim was highly improbable. I used my samples to test it. One of the greatest embarrassments a scientist has to face is to agree with the lunatic fringe. <laughs> so in other words, he did a complete 180. And this was kind of shocked everyone. It was quite interesting because actually he died in um, 2005, he died. In March of 2005, in just a few months earlier, January, he issued this statement. He felt that compelling that he had to say that all the time he'd been bagging these two, they were actually right. And he handed on his work to another scientist he knew. He said, it's your job to carry on after I'm gone. Because I'm, he knew he was dying. And he said to, to study this. So this, it's opened up the whole door of looking at how do they do this. And they've got some textile experts in them. Basically what they do is they undo the cloth, the original one, and then they get the filler cloth and they just wind them together so that human you can't tell. What gives it away is the colour. Right? There is no cotton in the shroud except on this patch. And that's how he knew. He said there's traces of cotton, there's traces of colour dye, and there's traces of a bonding material. He says all these are not on the rest of the shrouds. I know because I studied it, they're not on there. It's only in this corner, and that's the corner they use for the carbon dating. So, the interesting thing that Ray Rogers said was that it actually is probably not going to be possible to ever do 
a reliable carbon dating process again on the shroud. You saw that box where the firemen pulled it out, right? Inside that box, they, they treated it with a chemical called thymol. Thymol kills everything. And he said, unfortunately, that will contaminate and make unreliable any carbon dating process. So everyone goes, oh, no, you mean we've lost it? No, he said, they haven't. Because in 2002, the Vatican, well, not the Vatican, the local archbishop, the Cardinal Polenta, did it, and it's quite controversial what he did. He, they told him the cloth has to be repaired, there's too much foreign substance, so he got these textile experts to come in and to take out all the scorch bits, cut out all the scorch bits, all the burnt bits, They've got 42 vials of carbon from the bits that they cut out. Ray Rogers says that is perfect material to carbon date, and there's an abundance of it. <laughs> so it's irony how the, the burn marks, which you think almost destroyed it, is now going to be, hopefully, when they examine that, proof of the authenticity. He said it's already turned to carbon. So it, it, it won't affect, and if there's any thymol on it, you can treat that to get it off. But the, the actual process of going to carbon has already been done. So we, uh, we wait to see um, what will happen. Okay, now one of the other interesting areas is the study of pollens. Now this is a huge topic, and you know, we, but just to sum it up, right there. They did a study of pollens, and it's this is in the 70s, and got the gloves on and everything, but all he's doing is getting adhesive tape and putting it across the shroud and lifting it up and then putting under a microscope what he has discovered. All right? Let me read you the results. Just amazing. The shroud has pollen from flowers that only come together in one place, the Jerusalem Hebron area. The flowers blossom sometime between the months of March and May, the time when Jesus was crucified. The flowers placed next to the shroud bloom only one hour a day. So they were picked sometime between 3 and 4 p.m. before being placed next to the body. Incredible. Then they brought in some um, scientists from Israel who really know the local um, area and the pollens, and in fact, at this time, the earlier guy, Max Free up there, he passed away. And they said that this, they also compared the shroud to the head cloth. Now, there's another cloth that's associated with the shroud. In the scripture, you hear about the head cloth being rolled up and put aside. Well, that's the, they claim that that cloth is in Spain. Right? And they know that goes back to the 8th century. They've got documents to know that. But they studied the pollen on the head cloth and the blood type and the shroud and they say they match up and they compare. Um, pollen shows that the cloth was definitely in Israel at some time. Of the 58 types found on the shroud, 28 pollens come from the Middle East. 14 of the 28 plants only grow in the Middle East and never in Europe. So you can't say they, they 
got blown on there or something. The pollen doesn't blow across the Mediterranean. Of the 28 plants, 27 bloom only in the spring, which corresponds to the Jewish Passover. There are some plants that are only found within a 20-kilometre radius of Jerusalem. So, interesting. Now, this is originally was put out some years ago, and people kind of said, oh, you're just seeing things now. But some of the latest research with these special cameras and things that they're using, they can find. Now, what they're saying is that there seems to be these lumps over the eyes, and so they're looking into what these lumps are. Next slide, please. And um, so looking into it, and they're actually coins. And you can see the, like the, the embossment. And if you look at what that is, they claim that that is a coin of that era. It's called the Lepton Roman coil, and it was struck under Pontius Pilate AD 29. LIS means the 16th year. So this is um, again pointing to um, the time. It would be interesting to photograph the shroud again with modern digital cameras. A lot of scientists are keen to do this um, to sort of clarify issues like this. All right, next slide, please. So, yeah, this is, um, I just, just came out just a few months ago, this, I saw this image. Uh, this was a, an Italian scientist who took all the information of the shroud and has come up with a, a 3D um, body of the, of the shroud. So, uh, they say that Jesus was quite tall, particularly for that area. He's 5 foot 11, that's 180 centimetres. And he had a very regal and majestic expression which, of course, you can see from the, from the face route. Next slide, please. Um, I don't know if you know, but just they've been last, or year before last, they were doing um, repairs to the tomb of Jesus in Jerusalem. And I don't know if you've been there, but it's a, it's a tiny little room where you can go in. We said this was the original cave where Jesus was buried, and they built this basilica around it. And so it was in need of repair. So in um, 2016, they started doing repairs on it. And um, they've actually made a television show out of this, a thing, a documentary, which hopefully we'll see it um, one day. But one of the amazing things, a group of scientists um, found that there's a, there's a slab of marble uh, which covers the tomb of Christ and I think it's limestone, something underneath. But the, rep the scientists reported that measuring instruments were altered by electromagnetic disturbances when they were placed directly on the stone where Christ rested. The scientists reports that their measuring devices either malfunctioned or ceased to work at all. And I remember hearing that on the news when, when it happened. And people go, oh, yeah, just one of those things. But if you link it with what they're now breaking through of the shroud, it gets very interesting. They're saying that the image that projects from the body is parallel um, to gravity, 
And so it's, they're saying it's radiation. And they're saying this explains why the shroud has this kind of x-ray type look about it, where you can see the knuckle joints and the spaces of the hands. So in 2011, a research team tried to use radiation to see if they could reproduce the image of the shroud. And they were able to create just a little tiny section, just a little image, right? And um, it used heat, light, and energy, and it was a 40 nanosecond blast from an ultraviolet laser on this control cloth of linen. And they were able to achieve the same depth and coloration that we see on the shroud. Um, but they said if you wanted to do it across the whole surface of the body, it would be equivalent to 34,000 billion watts. And it's just not possible to do that. Uh, the, the, uh, the most available on the market apparently only does 7 billion watts. So not 34,000 billion watts. So something is radiating this energy. And you have to ask, what kind of energy radiates from a corpse? <laughs> and it raises the question, are the unusual electromagnetic phenomena observed on the site where Jesus is buried is that some kind of after-effects of the event which took place on the shroud, that we see on the shroud? So we've only just started to open up the frontier. The scientists that they met last year, and I was watching a video, and one scientist, he couldn't contain his enthusiasm, <laughs> he was saying that the next breakthrough on this is the study of the shroud at the atomic level. And he started, it kind of lost me a bit because he got very technical. I wrote down some of the basic things that he said. The radiation effect that caused the image of the shroud not only create carbon-14 atoms, but two other radioactive atoms of chlorine-46 and calcium-31. Doesn't mean anything to me, but this is the line. 99% of the calcium, calcium and chlorine atoms that may have been encoded into the shroud 2,000 years ago would still be present today. And they will be able to tap them and not, unlike carbon dating that destroys the sample, it's non-invasive and non-destructive. So they are really excited about the possibilities of where they can go with this, uh, with this um, atomic study of the shroud. So, amazing. All right, next slide, please. I want to just hone in a bit on the wounds. You can see, well, you know, we used to always see the shroud, we always think the nails went in the wrist, but the shroud tells us actually no. It came in, you can see the red section on the bottom, can you see that at the back there? It came in through here and came out here. And this way, it would actually support the weight of the body. Um, there are no, we mentioned there's no thumbs. See how there's no thumbs? That, um, uh, there's this 
forensic scientist in New York who studies murders and all these things, and he said that's what happens. The injury through there causes the thumbs to flip in like this automatically. And so it's interesting how, again, if that's a fake, somebody really understood this kind of thing, 2000 or Middle Ages at least. Next slide, please. The crown of thorns wasn't a crown, it was more like a cap, and it's right round the body, on the back, that's the back of the skull, and that's the kind of thorns that would have been used. Um, there are 372 blood wounds on the body. That doesn't include non-blood wounds, and it doesn't include any blood wounds down the side, because they're not on the cloth. So uh, they had used to have lead balls on the end of these whips that would dig in and just pull out the flesh. Um, there's also evidence of the, of the sword that, that went in, and um, the bottom right-hand section there, you can see the nail through the feet. Uh, so the, the way you, you, basically you hang if you want to breathe, you have to push up on your feet to catch your breath. And that's why when they uh, want to kill people on the finally, they break their knees because they can no longer push up and then they basically die. But Jesus had already died, remember, by scripture. So no bones were broken on Jesus' body. Next slide, please. If you want more information about the shroud, there's a thing called shrouduniversity.com and shroud.com. Both lots and lots of information there. Some fabulous YouTube videos by a guy called Dr. William Guy. Um, he's got probably the best. He William makes it lay. Talks, you know, he's, he's a scientist and I think he's kind of a lay ministry or something. He's, um, I think he's evangelical. Um, he has a little bit of a dig at the Catholics occasionally, but you've got to respect his stuff. He knows the shroud and he knows, he knows his science very well. Next slide, please. All right. What does all this mean? Sorry, well, we get all these things, but what does it do for our faith? If you get to the point you say, okay, I'm, I accept this. this. I accept this is the cloth of Jesus. Why do we want to keep on reflecting about the torturing of a man to death. Why do we do that? I remember once um, some friends of mine coming back from a conference, Disciples of Jesus, they stopped at McDonald's and they met this Japanese guy. And he said, oh, what are you doing? He said, oh, we've been on a religious retreat. You know, a religious retreat. He goes, no, what's that? You know, like religion, like with Jesus. No, who's Jesus? I couldn't believe it, right, this guy. So they started to tell him, they pull out the cross, you know, and they show Jesus on the cross. And he says, well, that's very bizarre. You have dead men around your neck. You know, and, and I mean, it makes you think, you know, it makes you look at things we take for granted. We back up a bit and you go, well, hang on, we've got to explain this. Why do we do this? Are we some kind of mac masochist or something? You'd like to look at all these things? Why do we want to contemplate Jesus' passion? Well, why did he do it? He did it for us, and we hear this, but we really got to let it sink in, or we're we just going to miss everything. He took on the punishment, the justice that was due to us. He took it upon himself so we could have eternal life. This is why divine mercy is just so, so important. It's the only way we can have eternal life. We're not going to rock up to the doors and say, Hey, Lord, I've ticked all the boxes. <laughs> Uh -uh. 
We're going to walk out the door and say, I'm poor, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, but I trust in your mercy. Remember that the hour of your death. Absolutely critical. Because we send ourselves to hell. God doesn't send us to hell. We send ourselves because we go, oh, couldn't possibly. Your brain tells you, I've been so bad, I couldn't possibly. But if you understand God's mercy, I'm so bad, but you're a greater saviour than I'm a sinner. I will trust in your mercy. Jesus said, welcome home. We're God's children. Think about how you feel about your children. He wants all his children to rejoice with him and live for eternity forever where every tear will be wiped away, every peace and happiness and joy. Imagine if one of your parents took on the guilt that you did. Imagine if they stepped forward and said, I'll take the punishment. And imagine if that cost them their life. How would you feel? I think you'd have to say gratitude, but that'd have to be the biggest understatement of the world, wouldn't it? Oh, I'm grateful you died for me. Like, hello? Think about it. But then think about how would they feel? Would your parents say, ah, look what I did for you? No. What would they want? They say, I did it because I love you. I just want two things. I want you to to recognize my love. And I want you to be grateful. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. I want you to recognize my love. And I want you to be grateful. Not just, oh, yeah, thank you. Just... You know, Mass Mass is all about the death of Jesus. It's not just Easter time we think about this. Every Mass celebrates the death of Jesus because that's the only way you and I are going to have eternal life. Do you think the parent that sacrificed their life would say, I hope you're feeling guilty? Of course not, right? They'd say, I did it because I love you. It's the same with Jesus. I I did it because I love you. And the more sinner you are, The more reason he loves you to give you, he's given you this gift. He wants you to use this gift, not only for yourself, not to waste it. If he's laid down his life for you, we have the opportunity to accept or reject it. If we accept it, then he can give us eternal life. What's more important than eternal life? Let's be honest. It just makes everything else we get on about so trivial. Eternity. This life is just a drop in the ocean of eternity. Everything else is trash in comparison, really. It's pretty. So let's not waste our life. Jesus has given us this to help it get through to our heads, but more importantly, go to our hearts the love that he has for us, the price that our sins, what he had to do to pay this debt for our sins, and he was willing to do it. Don't waste your life. Claim the grace. And it's not just for us, because he's saying, I want you to share this with others. You know, Christians, we have this great opportunity particularly Catholics really, have this great opportunity to really make sense of suffering. Suffering, you know, 
The cross makes sense of suffering. Suddenly, I can unite my pain in the belly with what Jesus did. He's done all the things, but I can unite my suffering. I say, Jesus, I give you my suffering. You are going to make it super. You, you are, I'm then going to be a channel for your grace that you won, not I won through my tummy, but by uniting with Jesus, his grace is going to come through me and I'll be able to share it with people that need prayer. What an incredible thing that we can apply this to others. Jesus said to St. Faustina that there's more merit in meditating on his passion for one hour than if you were to pick up a whip and whip yourself for a whole year until you bled. That's the power of Jesus' passion. It's a source of infinite graces. And it's just, you know, I talk about it, it's like having somebody came in and just said, I've put all this money in your bank account. It's infinite. How much can I spend? Whatever you want. What do I got to do to get it? All you got to do is fill out the withdrawal form. Right? There's infinite graces waiting. We just got to fill out the withdrawal form. We just got to claim it. We claim it in mass. We claim it in prayer. We claim it through trust. We claim it by uniting our sufferings with Jesus. What happens when we meditate on Jesus' suffering? First of all, we want to console him. We want to be there when those nails are going in. And we say, Jesus, I love you. I want to console you. How do you console a man who's getting nails? And he said, what is it for Jesus? Jesus is doing it for love. You console him when you take those graces and take him out into the world. How do we do that practically? We're praying. Maybe we're praying the sorrowful mysteries. And we say, Mary, Come with me to the foot of the cross and gather up all these graces that Jesus has just won for all of us and take them out and distribute them all over my family, my neighbour, my mother, my father, whoever, myself. When we do that, we are distributing. That's how we console Jesus because it's no longer graces are being wasted. They're being distributed. So, I think we'll leave it at that. Now as Paul Ellard with The Face of Christ or a Fake, the latest scientific discoveries. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit radio.org.au.